What is up, iFreaks Nation? Welcome to another episode of the iFreaks Show. And my name is Steve P. Young, founder of AppMasters.com. Joining me today is also Alex Lundquist. He'll be a co-host for me. And today we're going to talk all about how Dashlane revamped their iOS app, really talk about the coding aspect of it. So no further, no better guest to have on the show than Wu Islam, who manages the entire Apple and Android engineers at Dashlane. Great password manager app you guys got to check out. It is Dashlane in the app stores. Baru, welcome to the show. Hi, Steve. Hi, Alex. Thank you for welcoming me. Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. Root, you know, you kind of talk about the having some tech can you talk about a little bit about that? Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. <laughs> it's like the, the shameful uh, truth, you know, putting it out there. Yeah, so tech debt, I mean, it was all my work. <laughs> it was all my work when I joined Dashlane. So, you know, I joined Dashlane way back in 2011. At the time, I was, before I joined Dashlane, I was working for Xerox uh, Research Center in, in Europe. And that was really where I got into iOS work, um, you know, just built a few iPad apps, a few iOS apps. And I, I was really excited to join an early stage startup and do something exciting. So, you know, Dashlane came along and, and I joined this company. And that was in 2011 when, you know, I didn't have an awful lot of experience and it was just little old me working on this app. So long story short, I mean, you know, over the years, that original code that I laid down in the first few weeks in 2011 just hung around for years. And, you know, we built all kinds of things on top of it. Um, and the company was, you know, an early stage startup where we had a lot of aggressive deadlines and we had to survive, you know, startups fail and we had to survive. So that didn't give a lot of opportunity, I would say, for years to, to think about, okay, this is a start, but how can we make this a lot more maintainable and reliable? So I would say we kind of, you know, had this code base that did a lot of things. You know, it served our users, but it wasn't in great shape. I can give you some, you know, horror, horror words, things like, you know, single to know the use. We had, we went crazy with NS notification center. So everything was talking to each other with notifications because, you know, it worked. <laughs> and it was a, like this enormous monolithic code base. We didn't have modules or frameworks. It was just one big code base. So any, any attempt you made to try and isolate something, just over time, it would just erode because everything could just access everything else. So, so yeah, that was, that was Dashlane in the early years. And, you know, it was painful. You know, we didn't have a lot of, we didn't have a big team. It was me, maybe another developer. Um, every now and then an intern will join. And so for many years, it was a very, very small team, which that didn't allow us to you know, go on this big mission to revamp stuff. And all the while, we just kept building our user base. So it was like, well, this is bringing users. Yeah, it was never, you know, it's hard to sell to the to the management. Like, guys, I'm going to redo everything. It's going to look exactly the same, <laughs> but it's going to take a few months. Is that okay? And that would never sell easily. How did you do, how did you do that? Because you guys did end up migrating to Swift. Yeah, so the migration to Swift was, wasn't, you know, wasn't the silver bullet. 
So that was in only 2016. We we decided to jump on Swift, and that was when we went. Yeah, I think we picked it up at 2.3 or something. So we still had that painful shift to Swift 3. But it wasn't like, you know, we just rewrite everything in Swift. We kind of introduced, I mean, the, the beauty of mix and match with Objective-C is that you can add bits of Swift. And that's what we did. We added bits of Swift. Whenever we built a new feature, we would make a new framework and that would be Swift only. And that would be all nice and clean and, you know, would have unit tests. <laughs> and that's the other thing. In the early days, we didn't have a lot of practices that we have now. I mean, it's it's a, it's just a given that you're going to have unit tests, you're going to have a nice working CI, you're going to have a QA team, all these processes, you're going to follow, you know, sprints and scrum methodology. But at the beginning, it's just a bunch of guys in a room with a, you know, a router, an internet connection, and a few Macs. <laughs> so we didn't follow many practices in the early years and we actually just you know as the the company grew we all learned industry standards um and yeah so it, it was it was not easy to to really introduce swift i would say like i say it was you know when, when you have this very deep messy tech debt you can only touch the edges and touch any new things in swift so so yeah we we did write quite a few frameworks when Swift came out, we, well, when we started using Swift. So things like cryptography, we decided, okay, you know, dash lane password manager, better, better write our cryptography as in tip-top shape as we could. So we, we decided to use a framework for that. But then we had to plug it into this messy Objective-C code, which, right. which was always the pain point. Well, I want to kind of address this because I think it's valuable to anyone who's in your role right now in the audience and kind of being like, well, how do I talk to management and talk about, all right, I'm going to rewrite this whole thing. How do I sort of say, oh, here's the business goals versus you, Rue, saying, here's why from a technical perspective, we should do this. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think I'm going to have answers that will fit every company, but I think in any company, you know, you have your business objectives and you have the time that iOS engineers need to spend purely on chasing those business objectives but then you always have time when you know you're doing things for your you know your your app for your team i think that's where you need to be smart about how you spend your time i mean one thing that has actually helped us is this apple annual cycle you know every year we have wwdc and then we know we're going to be hit by these new shiny iphones and a new os in the fall and that actually helps us to kind of buy ourselves some time because the good thing about Dashlane is we were quite okay to drop, you know, version support. So I think around around that iOS 10, we were happy to like say, okay, after a few months, we're going to drop iOS 9 support. And then from then on, we always supported the latest version and, you know, the previous one, but not for very long. So I think you, you have to make opportunities for yourself. Um, and it's it's difficult, especially when you have a product that's fairly successful. <laughs> you know, there's no, there's no like killer reason to do it. It's, you know, it's, it's making money. It's, it's, you know, user support isn't flooded with tickets. Things are rolling along. It's just under the hood. It's difficult. And I like what you said about like making small changes because I, I work with a lot of companies like it's making money. What do you, what do you want to change stuff for? You're just slowing everything down, right? Like we got more features to build that are probably going to bring in more money. Yeah, and, and you know, refactors and and changing things is a constant need. It's and and I think 
the thing about debt is like once it gets to a certain level, it just starts to get painful in other ways. And what we found is it was getting painful for recruitment. You know, if we we want we got to a point where we could have the liberty to, to grow the team. For years, it was just like four or five developers, but now we're like 10, 11 developers. And it was difficult to get to that size because, you know, you, you do all the work to hire really great talent. And then they arrive and they're like, whoa, what are we playing with here? <laughs> and that that's painful. Um, you know, and people can, you know, be kind of put off by, you know, when they see horror code bases. And, and it wasn't terrible. It's just, it's not the most um, elegant thing to work with, especially if you can't delve into the fancy stuff of, you know, Swift and uh, and Swift UI and Combine, et cetera. But that's another topic for later. That's interesting. I didn't even think about the recruitment aspect of it. So you talk about the tech debt and, you know, moving forward and you've changed. How, what kind of design pattern obstacles did you have to overcome in that regard? That, that's a great question. And um, I look back and I say, you know, there was no architecture and it was all anti-patterns. I mean, I may be exaggerating slightly, but I mean, here's the thing. Like we were a company where I think for the first few years, we were really intensely working towards making this company successful, meaning, you know, making sure we can hit certain goals so that we can satisfy investors or or get the company to the next level. And we, like for, for the first few years, we were always on the cusp of failure. Like, you know, there was always a like, chance we'd all be on LinkedIn looking for a new job. So we didn't have a lot of time to go to conferences, for example. And we're very inward looking. And when, when you're kind of inward looking, I think looking back, it, it looks like naivety and arrogance mixed together. But honestly, we were just trying to, trying to make it work. I think when we did get a bit of breathing space, you know, where we started to actually, you know, not need to chase so many deadlines, we, we all started, you know, we had a new CTO join and he was really into like, everyone go to conferences now, <laughs> which was great. And that really, I mean, it sounds kind of, it doesn't make sense these days, but at the time it's like, you know, big light being sh- shone on everything we were doing. And when we went to conferences, we saw, you know, and there's a the thing about conferences and you just see the perfect examples of everything, like the perfect way of doing testing, the perfect way of setting up your CI. And, and then you come back on, you know, Monday morning back to the office and you're like, oh, I can't use any of this stuff. <laughs> so, so that was good. It was great to see all this stuff at conferences. It was frustrating to come back and like, you know, find, oh, but where do I start? But slowly over the years, we started to actually take on board a lot of the learnings we, you know, we got from. And the great thing is, you know, the, the industry, the iOS world has really fantastic conferences, really fantastic speakers. So, I think, you know, there's a lot of rich content there you can kind of inspire yourself from. So in terms of architectures and patterns in, in the old days, it was, it was massive view controllers everywhere. And what we really wanted to get to is a world where we did at least have something that fit our app. And that was a crucial part when we were thinking about what kind of patterns do we want to use what kind of um, architecture we want to set up our app relies on the user logging in so there is a very clear point where you know the user needs to authenticate themselves and then a whole bunch of services need to be made available and some of those services are are asynchronous and what we wanted is is safety above everything and reliability 
what we had originally was a whole bunch of code that had a lot of optionals, essentially. So, you know, you'd always be checking, like, is the user logged in? Okay, he's logged in. Great, I can do something. And it was all fragile and brittle, where we wanted a world where if the user was logged in, authenticated, everything was safe to use. So when the features were being built and we knew we were in the state of a user being logged in, everything was you know, there. It was not a VAR, it was a let, and it was, it was available to use. And then when the user logged out or the session ends, you can just let go of everything, release everything. That's what we wanted. So in the end, I mean, we, we can go into that later. We settled on MVVM with a sort of coordinator. And the, some of the reasoning behind that was we really wanted to, you know, we, we had developers who were really excited about Swift UI and Combine. And we wanted to leverage, you know, the ability to build Swift UI components, but still maintain existing UI kit features. Um, when we did the rewrite, we weren't rewriting the whole, all the features and all the UI. We, what we were rewriting was the app architecture, um, everything under the hood, like deep down under the hood. And you know, the features that we built recently, we were happy with. They were UI kit features, but that's fine. And we wanted to be able to plug them in. And I think when we looked at you know what what was available, MVVMC, that kind of fit because you know, we could we, we had this sort of UI kit like high level architecture where sort of tab controllers and navigation controls are UI kit. But then when you're presenting a feature, that can all be in Swift UI and that's fine. No, I was going to say it was, it was difficult to decide on something when, you know, when you're working with a technology that isn't really polished either. Um, Cause we, we decided all this, let's say like early this year and we didn't know what was going to come out in June with WWDC and we knew that we'd end this project around August, September time. So we weren't sure if, you know, we're investing a lot in a version of Swift UI, which would suddenly be out of date with iOS 14. So there was a bit of a gamble we had to take, but in the end, it turns out it's not so bad. There are improvements on, on Swift UI, but it doesn't hurt us too bad. Well, on top of that, while we're talking about WWDC, you know, I think the biggest thing that I take away from it, it's always like the shining, like kind of what you said, Rube, it's like, oh, wow, this is so perfect. Like we got to do this, right? How do you decide from a technology perspective that, all right, these new iOS 14 features, for example, we should start incorporating, we should really look at, does it make sense? You sit down as a team, like go through all the new latest features, like yes, no, yes, no, maybe. Yeah, that, that's really evolved over the years. Like I remember when I joined, it was, it was like two years before I even started Watching WWDC, <laughs> it was like just that the thing that happened, and you know, new stuff came out, but we never had the opportunity to use them. And then, I think around iOS nine, iOS ten, no, no, sorry, iOS eight. Yeah, that was the big one for us. That was a big one. Um, that was a big one because extensions, you know. And think about a password manager on desktop. You have, you know, these glorious browser extensions that can do all, all kind of things. Where on iOS pre iOS eight, we had this hack together web view where we'd be injecting some JavaScript, kind of trying to capture the DOM structure to determine if we can autofill something. So it was it was possible, but it was terrible because the user had to browse within a password manager. And that's like, what? Well, who's going to do that? So to get something happening in Safari was like, wow, that would be just you know a dream. 
And I always say extensions kind of, it wasn't the best experience, but it allowed us to do something within Safari. So that was the first time we were like, oh, wow, you know, Apple are opening up Safari. Maybe we can do something with this. And, you know, they always have examples that are very, very much fitting with, you know, the companies they're working with or the, or the, the mode users are using you know, their devices in. And, and sometimes you kind of have to hack away at what they release to, to get the most out of them. And, and that was the case with IOSA, um, having this extension. So the user would be, let's say he's on, he's on Twitter.com and he's logged in. He'd have to actually trigger the extension, load Dashlane. Dashlane would then inject some JavaScript, determine what's going on. Then once he selects his login, that would be like your last attempt to throw some JavaScript at the page before the extension goes away and hope that it all works. <laughs> so yeah, that was I would say. And then since then, we, we realized, you know, WDBC could be very, you know, important to us as a company. So every June, we'd, we'd try to send someone out there, but we'd also sit down with the product manager. I think that was a really crucial thing because it was important to not, for it not to be just a developer discussion. We had to, pull in the product team. And, and one year, actually, we sent a product member out there to, to kind of just experience the whole, sh- the whole circus, but also to really kind of, it's kind of visceral to be there in the sessions and to hear what Apple are trying to do. And as a product manager, I think it's really significant to hear those things. And then, you know, you, you come back really loaded with ideas. So yeah, we, we would, we sit every June with the product team, you know, as soon as the the, the keynote, we don't get a lot of info, but it's usually like the platform state of the union when we, you know, unfortunately for us Europeans, we have to wait until the next day because it's usually like 2 a.m. for us. Yeah, yeah. So, but, but obviously this has all changed now this year, but um, yeah, we'd sit with the product team. We'd go through what we as engineers think are like the most relevant things. And we, we'd kind of divide things up into things that make total sense for our users, you know, that add value to Dashlane and things that we think are cool and related to that would be things we think we should probably support because it's going to help us get into those feature boxes with Apple. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's always on our mind. Like, what is the investment on this and are we going to get a return for it? And some things, it doesn't make any sense to a password manager, but you just got to do it. Example, dark mode. I mean, <laughs> I mean, the, the way to think about it, I guess, is, you know, you're like this citizen, you know, you're this um, guest on the person's phone. And you know yeah. you have to kind of play by play by the rules of the phone. So yeah, dark mode was one we had to do. So so yeah, it started off with extensions, and we had things that came along for things like the iPad split view slide over. It didn't make an awful lot of sense for us, but we did it anyway. Widgets was an interesting one for us. Um, the way we use what well, we have a widget, the way we use it is to to display two FA codes. So if you have two FA codes for that's a great services, idea. I like that. I hate and, and those things sometimes. I'm just like, dude, <laughs> and then I gotta go to an app. But yeah, I love that with the widget. That just makes right. complete sense. Yeah, yeah. And actually, that 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 was the only thing that made sense for us on on the watch because you know the watch came out. And we're like, ah, what can we do? Right. <laughs> yeah, we'll have like someone read their password. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, so, but we thought two FA codes, total sense. Um, so, so sometimes you you know you're desperately trying to make something that Apple produce you know, interesting for you. And other times it's just a complete natural fit. But the killer was in iOS 12. And I think that that's probably a story worth telling. So actually in iOS 11, we had app password autofill. 
So this was this was you know all for Apple. You know, Apple created something for their iCloud keychain. And if you're on Twitter on the Twitter app and you have like an associated domain with Twitter, then Apple knows that they can fill in the credentials that are in the keychain. So we saw this and we're like, just imagine if this existed for the password managers. And at that time, something interesting, really interesting happened. A couple of our competitors got in touch with us. So at the time, this was LogMeIn, so LastPass and AgileBits, uh, 1Password. And they were, you know, they were all thinking the same thing. So we had a few months where we'd be on conference calls together, just cooking up ideas That's cool. of how could this work for us. And it was great. We, you know, we all had sort of a relationship with Apple. We'd always had like some contact that we had either through for the stores or for, for being featured and whatnot. So we just hit them up and they asked us to, you know, all file radars. So we, at the time, you know, it was bug reports. So we essentially all filed the same bug report. I think Agile Bits had a, had a pretty good connection with a contact in California. So this was all really exciting. And then the line went cold. We just didn't hear anything. All our bugs kind of just stayed in, you know, in the open state or, or maybe duplicate. And then WWDC, iOS 12, password autofill for third-party apps. We were like, we did it. That's crazy. <laughs> That's insane. Alex, where's <laughs> I mean, the chain drop? <laughs> <laughs> wow. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was really interesting. Like, it was fascinating for me that, you know, changes to an operating system could come about this way and probably do, and we just don't hear about it. I mean, Apple aren't going to make this public. And that's totally fine by us. Um, we knew that if it works for our competitors, it works for us. And that's kind of the good thing about the Apple platform. It's very rarely do they kind of uniquely do something for a certain third-party company. I think they did in the past, maybe with Facebook integration or Twitter integration. But mostly the, the playing field is mostly flat, or at least for us, you know, password managers, let's say. And Apple have their own password manager. so kind of great that we got that and once we got password autofill i think it really changed the game for us as an, an ios app because i think as a service dashlane you know wanting to reduce friction of online life about passwords and registering for services it makes sense but on ios it was always a bit of a handicap not having that ability so yeah that's really exciting so true hey folks this is charles maxwood and over the last few years i've gotten to know a lot of great people within the microsoft community and specifically in the .NET area. Uh, one of our guests from JavaScript Jabber, Sean Clabo, actually reached out to me and said he wanted to start a show on .NET. And there are a ton of people out there that I feel like sometimes get neglected in the .NET space. So if you're one of those folks, uh, you've been listening to maybe one or two of the other .NET-focused or Microsoft-focused podcasts for a while and thought, well, where's the devchat.tv-style podcast for me in .NET? You can find it. It's at adventuresin.net.net is spelled out D-O-T-N-E-T. Adventuresin.net.com. Go check it out today. I'm so glad they did. I think Apple will always do what's best for the users too. Was yeah, it weird and- when they're like, you know, one password, they're like calling in where you're like, oh my goodness, do I not reveal too much? Was that a weird conversation? It it was pretty it was pretty okay. I mean, I think the interesting thing was we're all, you know, when you're in a company, you, very often you'll find yourselves in a meeting room just thinking about how to get forward, how to make progress, how to hit the next. So you just appreciate that everyone's in the same yeah. same game, right? And, and the reality is, uh, philosophically, 
password manager is better than no password manager. So whether you use us or a competitor, I mean, like for, in terms of safety online, I think, you know, that makes sense. So it, it was it was a bit strange. I think there was a funny moment where, and, and this, is, this is really bizarre. There, there was a, this wasn't Zoom, okay? This was like dial-up conference call where you have no idea who you're talking to. And there could be like five people on the line. What is this, 1998? Come on. <laughs> no, this is, this is back in 2000 and, like 2017. So it wasn't, you know, but anyway, we didn't have Zoom. We're on DSL now, and, okay. <laughs> and, well, this is the funny thing. Um, Agile Bits, they had someone in their company who they called Rue. So there was this one awkward moment when, you know, the CEO of Agile Bits was saying, so Rue, you'll get that thing sorted out, won't you? And I was like, uh, yeah. (laughs) 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 And then like a couple of calls later, they they realized what had gone on in that call and they felt kind of like, you know, they found it hilarious and kind of embarrassing. And, And I was like, I hung up thinking, did he just tell me to do something? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> what kind of relationship is this? <laughs> that was funny. That was funny. Hilarious. But no, it was it was awesome. I mean, you know, and I think it would be cool for for companies that are working with Apple to think about that, to think about, you know, maybe joining forces with their competitors to to kind of go and propose to Apple, hey, look, with and you know, we went to a lot of detail. And I kind of regret that, actually. You know, we, we actually defined what you, sh- you should see on the settings screen to be able to enable a password manager. And what, what, frustrated, what is so frustrating right now is users don't always know what they need to do. You know? um, they have to be told to go to settings, go to passwords, go and check this checkbox, and then turn on. And, I, and we wish we'd just created like this you know, sheet that appears within the app that just says enable dash lane. Boom, it's done. Hey, the next thing I want to move on to is test flight in particular and how you guys are utilizing it and some of the changes. What I love about it now is you can just send out a link and everybody gets it. It's a lot easier for some of the noobs out there being like download test flight and all that junk. But how have you guys utilized it? Yeah, I mean, I've seen test flight evolve over the over the years. You know, initially I think the the number of users you can have on it was really limiting. So it wasn't it was never that interesting for us. Um, but however, for this refactor project, it was super useful in that, I mean, I have to like kind of explain that we had this app, you know, all with all the legacy debt, but it was out in the store and we were still updating every two weeks. You know, we'd, we'd grown as a company and we had teams working on this app and in parallel, we had to evolve this, you know, this new app. So, I mean, the nature of the app store, one day you're going to have to replace one version with another. And it's like a big leap of faith. So one of the things we like struggle with as you know, a, a company where we don't actually have access to the user's data, mm. which um, you know, a lot of companies like, like I say, Facebook or Twitter, they can just take the data they have on the server and test things you know, with user data or whatever, where sometimes we can't actually test some ideas until the user has unlocked their account and actually use the feature because their account will be in a certain state that we can't always reproduce internally. You know, we have testers, we have test accounts, but that's not always going to capture all the nuances of someone who's had a Dashlane account, let's say for, say for five years, and their account is in a certain state that can only be understood when it's decrypted. 
So only when it's running in memory. So for those cases, it really, test flight, you know, was a bit of a savior there because it allowed us to, while we still have this legacy app in production, we, you know, we sent our CRM to about 10,000 users with a public link. Said, hey guys, we have a new update coming up. Do you want to help us try it out? Unfortunately, you know, you're not going to get 10,000 users. You're going to get something like 600. But still, that that was really helpful. But the frustrating thing is, you know, yeah, so someone starts using your test flight app. They have an issue with it. And then they have to do this screenshot thing, this dance where they have to submit it and write, write their message. And you have to go through App Store Connect. And that's a pain because you log in and, you know, sometimes the UI is going to work with you today. Sometimes it's not. Um, so I think the idea is great if we were able to suck out all the feedback from App Store Connect and somehow put it into our own workflow through Jira or whatever, that would have been ideal. But I did mean like every morning I'd, you know, log into App Store Connect and look up the feedback and I'd be scrolling and downloading the images and text, copy and pasting over to Jira. And so that was a bit painful, but I think, you know, as with everything with Apple, this stuff evolves. And I think now with the App Store Connect API, you probably could script something um, to kind of access everything you need without having to log into App Store Connect. But yeah, Test Flight was was good. And it really allowed us to, to you know, push out builds to Test Flight whenever we wanted, get those users to update and, and test things out. So that, I'm that's assuming really like cool. the 10,000 you pick were like power users that you're like, okay, just sort of not not no we wanted random, random. we wanted oh, okay. random because we we didn't you know we didn't know what bias you know the power users want, might give we also wanted free users you know that didn't have a premium account um, we we wanted everyone every variety of users that that was that was the biggest nerve-wracking thing is think about the day where we just swap out that update and we go from legacy to revamp version and you know and you have your your phased release but you don't have a lot of control over it. You kind of, you start it off, you can pause it. And, you know, Apple say, you know, it's at 1%, but we can look at our own statistics and we see that actually it's a bit more than 1%. And it's ever growing because you can still manually update. So, and we did have issues, you know, we assumed we'd have an issue. So we released it and paused it straight away. <laughs> we were like, okay, let's, let's check the graphs. <laughs> let's see what's going on. <laughs> Is this thing working? <laughs> um, I, and we actually had a, an option, which was a crazy option, we had, you know, a version update that went back to the old app. But we had to make sure anything we migrated was able to unmigrate. It was a crazy situation if we had to use it, but we had that in our back, back pocket. We really didn't want to use that option because that, you know, that meant you're then, okay, you have a bunch of users that are not upgraded, then you have users that have upgraded and then downgraded. Oh, it's a mess. So, yeah, we paused straight away and then, you know, we, we realize there's an issue. Let's hot fix that. And then we continue the rollout. Um, and that went on for a few weeks until we got to a satisfactory stability. Correct me if I'm wrong, Rube, but I think Android has the same type of rollout feature. Is that what you guys are doing on Android? And how does that differentiate between? Because I don't think there's a, a test flight on Android. You, you can have like a beta channel. And I think they have more control over the, the phase rollout period. So on, on Apple, the phase rollout is seven days. And it's it's kind of exponential. So, you know, 1%, 2%, 5, 10, 20, 50, 100. And that's for your existing users. Android, I believe, has a bit more granularity as to, you know, how you can phase your rollout. It's, it's not the end of the world. You know, Apple 
you know, it's a bit more restricted, but you can work with it. The only frustrating thing is, is, you know, this version update thing. If, you, if you're going to do a major, major change, then there's always going to be an element of risk. And that's down to just testing and, and getting, you know, getting your version out to test flight users as much as possible. And confidence, you know, it's up to you how, how much confidence you have. We felt, we felt pretty confident. And uh, yeah, we had a few hiccups along the way, but honestly, it, it wasn't so bad. And recently, you know, we've been looking at our ratings and people are rating it really high. And I think it's down to the performance gains we got. If you think about a lot of apps like, you know, social network apps, they're desperate for your eyes to be on the app as long as possible. We're the opposite. We want users to just go in and out. They want something, they jump into our app, they log in, get in our app, get what they want and, and leave. So what's critical to us is this decryption of like, how do we load that account as fast as possible? And that's something we worked on. And, and I think at least long-term users probably felt that snappiness, felt that difference. And I think that makes you know, a huge difference to them because usually when they're, if they're going into a password manager, it's probably because at some point in their life, they, they need something. So they need that thing now. <laughs> it could be like you know a, a message, a, a passcode, or something. So yeah, and, and we worked. I mean, we used we didn't use anything new and fancy. We used like uh, NS operation queues. Well, an NS operation queue where we could actually chop up a lot of things we can parallelize, which meant that we can make maximum use of the the device performance where. Previously, it was all linear, like on a single thread, somewhere in the background, but it wasn't. It could have been in the foreground, no, on the main thread. It wouldn't have made any difference. The fact that we could split our sort of login process into chunks and then just throw them in an operation queue, and you know, depending on how many processes you have, that can just sort of blast through the work at maximum performance. Just meant that we can log log users in that much quicker. I wanted to circle back to the, I love the calls with the competitors. Alex had a, something that he wanted to mention, like, was there a common feature that came about or was there something that you were able to, something that came about from this common feature that came about from this collaboration? The, the thing that triggered it was iOS 11 and the password auto fill for apps. Yeah, I see. that was, that was what triggered it. And, and I think we all had the same thought, like, that's what we want. What we <laughs> right. And yeah, I mean, I mean, looking on from that, I, I mean, Apple have shown an interest in the password manager space. They actually created an open source resource on, on GitHub. They call it password manager resources. So I think, you know, they've accepted the fact that password managers are a thing and they're out there and they may as well help them because it, it's in line with what they're trying to do with, you know, privacy and, and security. Um, so in this resource, you'll find things like common websites that have the same credentials. So if you log into, let's say, I don't know, iTunes.com and AppStoreConnect.com, it's the same login, but the password managers might not know that. So they actually got resources that you know people can contribute to to say, you know, in, in France we may have a supermarket that has this website, but you can also log into this other website with the same credentials. So they're they I think they're making, you know, making a home for password managers within the Apple ecosystem. I'd love to be able to have an open dialogue with <laughs> with Apple about you know what other features we'd love, and, and and I guess that's where you know feature requests come in and and you know you go to WWDC well you don't go this year but typically you'd go you go to the labs you'll find 
you know, someone in the security team and say, hey, we've got some ideas, try and get a conversation going. But yeah, I think um, the alternative is to, to work with competitors. Do you feel that that collaboration together had a, had a stronger impact on, you know, Apple's view on, on changing things or? I have no idea. I, I have no idea what other collaborations are going on that we don't know about. You know, other APIs that other companies might be interested in, maybe, I don't know, ARKit or CoreML, where certain companies are very deep into those topics. And they're probably like, hey, Apple, this is how you should be doing things. And maybe, maybe they have a dialogue going with Apple to make you know, improvements to those APIs. But yeah, I think for, for the password manager space, it, it's a fairly, to me, it's a fairly recent thing. I mean, when I joined Dashlane, I didn't know what a password manager was. And it was interesting to see the evolution of that world you know, from this obscure geeky app or technology people use to, it's really mainstream now, you know, you, you often get, you know, these breaches happening and then some sort of headline would be, you know, so many passwords lost and someone might mention, you know, maybe think about using a password manager to solve this problem. So, so yeah, I think that's, I'm curious to see how Apple evolve their interaction with password managers. Just to know, I think in, in Big Sur, they're going to bring the password autofill to the Mac as they have it on, on iOS. So third-party developers can also start filling in credentials on the Mac. Something else they evolved is essentially this ability to change weak passwords, but currently it's restricted to the Apple iCloud keychain feature. So this is a, a if you let's say you have an app that has a login and a password, you can integrate this extension that allows Apple to interact with that extension to change the password for your service. So if Apple detect in the keychain that your service, the user has a weak password for your service, then Apple can suggest to the user, hey, do you want to change it? And if your app integrates this extension, it'll be all changed all in a snap. That'll be awesome for third party password managers to have access to which we don't i imagine it could be opened up maybe in the future alex you got anything else uh, it's kind of thinking like so do you feel like this kind of was kind of a one-time off collaboration or i mean do you, do you see yourselves like hooking up with some of the other password managers out there again and collaborating uh, yeah personally i think i'd love to see that happen i mean it, i guess it there's an element of you know, the business also deciding on how, how much that needs to happen. From an engineering point of view, it makes sense. You know, if we can squeeze more features out of Apple and this is the route to do it, then, then great. Um, I, think, I, I think Apple could probably have ideas of their own. But, you know, we'll, yeah, the difficulty with Apple is you never know. Even in this case, we had conference calls, we had you know, great conversations, and then, then everything went silent. We had no idea they were, you know, developing this stuff for iOS 12. Do anything we missed that you want to make sure we cover? Yeah, I think you know, SwiftUI and Combine. I think they're topics that engineers are really excited about. We wanted to get involved with SwiftUI and Combine. Combine was something that really helped us actually when we look at our how we handled our services. We have this issue when a user is authenticated. We have a whole bunch of services that are asynchronous but they need to be ready in order for the app to actually function. And we kind of found a neat way of using Combine where we can actually make all the services publishers and some of the services are dependent on each other. So the great thing about, I mean, the alternative 
to combine would have been a horror chain of closures where you just have closures within closures and at some point everything's ready and you can let the app start or the user get logged in where kind of the beauty of combine and publishing is that you know it's just pipes and you're just connecting pipes to each other and then if you have any dependencies you you know that's a future that you wait for that dependency service to be to be available or ready to use and then that allows you to safely let the user into the app knowing that everything's ready to go so we were, previously we were doing that with you know delegates and notifications and it was a mess um, it worked but it was a mess we're here it's a lot more you can reason with it you can look at the code and, and it makes a lot more sense from what's going on and yeah and safety was i mean the whole rewrite right was great um it, it's great to see new code that you know we have an architecture and patterns that are used but the main thing that we got out of it was safety one of the biggest pain points that i find as i talk to people about software is deployment it's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's I don't want to deal with Docker. I don't want to deal with Kubernetes. I don't want to deal with setting up servers. I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from The Food Fight Show. And we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of the Food Fight Show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. Awesome. Well, Ruth, let's get into our picks. You got a pick for us? Uh, I have two kids, eight and 10. And I really don't want them to be stuck in front of iPads all their spare time. So I came across this website called Prodigy Game. So it's like this role-playing game where you have this character, they have weapons, and they're going around you know, finding monsters to slay. But every so, time you want to hit the monster, you've got to do a math problem. So, you know, it, it's pretty cool. And they, they love it. So yeah, Prodigy Game, I, if you have kids and you know, you're in that dilemma of do they spend all their time on, in front of a screen, this is a way to you know, spend, have fun playing a role-playing game and do some maths at the same time. You're a much better dad than I am because I spend my time playing Among Us. And that's my pick with my kids. I got a 12-year-old and a 7-year-old. We are obsessed with Among Us. And that's all we're doing anytime we get free time. But that would be my pick. Alex, what's your, what's your pick? You took mine. <laughs> that was it. It's, it. It is really kind of fascinating how like the simplest of games can, you know, really take off within a family culture. And, uh, you know, I, I've got four kids and it's funny, um, you know, two of them are, are young. One is six, one is eight. And my eight-year-old daughter is is totally addicted to Prodigy. You know, she just can't get enough of it. And But my, my six-year-old, though, he's, he's the funny one. He is probably the uh, best imposter in, in the game among us. I, I don't know how he pulls it off, you know, being six, but 
he he on average wins more games than the rest of us combined when he's the imposter. So, but yeah, so I was going to totally go with that pick. So I don't know what I could come up with. <laughs> <laughs> we can have two picks, same pick. Right. Dude, this was awesome, man. The If the audience wants to follow up with you, obviously the app is called Dashlane. So go check it out in the app stores. There's a web component too. So dashlane.com. But Rue, if the audience wants to connect with you personally, do you want to send them anywhere else? Yeah, they can they can find me on Twitter or they can email me at ru.islam at dashlane.com and I'll be happy to answer any of their questions. Awesome. Ru, thank you so much for coming on and doing this. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Alex. All right, yeah. Alex, it was a pleasure doing this with you. We will see you on the next iFreaks show. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.